<clears throat> good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. It's truly a, as always, a blessing to be in the house of the Lord and to have the opportunity to study a portion of God's Word. And we look, I look forward to uh, this study as uh, the, uh, the topic, uh, Salvation in Christ in the Old, the old and the New Testament. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk this morning a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the differences. Oh, sorry. Is that better? No. Yeah, it's blue. Okay. Okay. So we're going to talk about some things about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the differences when one ended and when the other began, and salvation under both the Old and the New Testament. Um, certainly an interesting study, and I hope it's something that that you're interested in and that um, will be helpful to you as it has been to me. From the beginning, before the world began, God had a plan of salvation. He had a plan that in the fullness of time, he was going to redeem to himself a people through his son, Jesus Christ. So before God said, let there be light, he already had a plan for man's redemption. And that's that's comforting, isn't it? That's, that's God's love and God's foresight, God's providence that rules this universe and is in rule in our lives. And, and that's a, hopefully that's a comforting thing to you as it is to me. Uh, shortly after the creation, we see the need for God's plan for redemption. We see the disobedience of Adam and Eve. We see the fall in the garden. We see the entrance into the world of death and sin. And I'm going to go through this very quickly. I like history. I can talk about history a lot, but I'm, going to, I gotta, I'm not going to try to tarry real, real long on these points. From Adam to Noah, there were 10 generations. From Adam to Noah, 10 generations, we have the flood. We have basically God starting over with the family of Noah. 10 generations later, there's a man named Abram, and, a, and God calls Abram to go to the land that he will show him. Eventually, his name will be called Abraham, a father of, of many nations. Um, but we see that God made promises to Abraham, and he begins to reveal through Abraham his plan of salvation. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you that land that I'm going to send you to as an inheritance for your descendants. I'm going to make of those descendants a great nation, and through your descendants will all nations of the earth be blessed. The Messiah will come through your descendants. <clears throat> Before he has any children, God tells him, but your descendants are going to serve in a strange nation for 400 years. God telling Abraham about the Egyptian bondage that, was, that lay in front of his people. This was before Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and all of those things, which would be fulfilled in those people. And through Joseph as he's taken into Egypt, and eventually the whole family comes there, and eventually are made slaves, and they're there for 400 years. And then God, in the appointed time, raises up a deliverer, and that being Moses. And so Moses was the deliverer, and he was the lawgiver. And so we see the beginnings of the law of Moses. And so at Mount Sinai, God gives to Moses that the law of Moses. So there's some 600, somebody counted them, 612 thou shalt and thou shalt nots in the law of Moses. Um, and along with that, God gives to Moses instructions concerning his worship. 
And he, appoint, he tells him how to appoint in the family of the, who will be the family of the priests and how they will transcend this generation to generation. <clears throat> because along with God's moral law, <clears throat> God is provide, going to provide a uh, system of sacrifices that will be offered for the ultimate transgressions that will happen under that law. So God's giving them a law and he's giving them a system of sacrifices that will be offered for their transgressions that they inevitably will happen under that law. <clears throat> this system, this law, this system of sacrifices will last for 1,500 years. So from the time that the law is given to Sinai till Jesus dies on the cross, which we'll find is when that law ended, these rules, these laws will govern the people of God <clears throat> throughout the history of Israel, which we're not going to talk in any extent about. There's 1,500 years of history. We could talk a long time, but we're not <clears throat> because we don't have that time. But we know that history that they're, they enter the promised land, they conquer, they're ruled by judges, they, they ask for a king, they are given a king, they have a united kingdom for 120 years. Then they have a divided kingdom for almost 1,000 years. And we know that history. If you don't know that history and you want to talk about it, I'll be happy to do it, with, talk about that with you. But for 1,500 years, <clears throat> that goes on. And throughout this 1,500 years, there's a steady drumbeat of the prophets pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Holy One that God has promised. <clears throat> Concerning the law, Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What was God doing with the law? <clears throat> the law was not for the purpose of redemption. The, the law was for the purpose of showing people that we are sinners before God, that no one could keep God's righteousness, God's righteous commandments to perfection no human being could do that. And so what the law was doing was preparing the world for what we need, and that is a Savior. So some things about the law of Moses, it showed the righteous expectations of God, and it defined the things that were sinful. It demonstrated to those who were governed by it that they all fell short. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3 says, We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every human being that has ever lived, with the exception of one, <coughs> has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the law, there was no provision for mercy. There was simply this system of sacrifices that rolled people's sins ahead a year at a time. <clears throat> and, and as I just said. Um, <clears throat> but in those sacrifices, this is Hebrews chapter 10. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the tabernacle and he entered into what was called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place within the tabernacle, where was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. He only went in once a year and only he could go in. And first he had to go in and he had to offer sacrifices for himself because he used sinful humanity like everybody else. And then he would offer, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seats and not and an offering for the sins of the people. <clears throat> but there was not remission in those sacrifices. There was only the rolling forward 
of those things. <clears throat> so the law was constantly looking forward, even though those under the law did not comprehend it, it was ever looking forward to the time of the Messiah, to the time of Christ. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said this, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promises were made. Those promises, remember, to Abraham, going to give you the land, going to give you the nation. Through your descendants will all nations of the earth be blessed. Through your seed, that seed, Paul says, was Christ. The promised seed, the, the promised one who would bless all nations was Jesus Christ. And so the law was a place marker. It was, it was there as a temporary measure as the world was prepared by God for Christ. Galatians chapter 4 tells us a verse that we've talked about many times over the past few months, over the past year probably. Um, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the perfect timing, God was preparing, he was announcing, he was foreshadowing, he was prophesying about this time. And when the fullness, when the time was right, when the world was prepared, Jesus was born into this world, born of a woman and born under the law. So it's important to remember that Jesus was born under the law of Moses. Jesus was born, lived, and died under the law of Moses. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about the law. He said, do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus would fulfill it. As Jesus was, was talking about the law, though, notice something that Jesus did. <clears throat> this, is, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. You probably recognize that. As Jesus was talking about the law of Moses in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say things like, it has, You have heard from them of old, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is a murderer. So you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is taking the law of Moses and he's fully, he's more, he's expounding on it for what will be the expectations when the New Testament, when the new covenant comes into place. What will be expected of those who will be in the kingdom of God, which has not yet appeared, but will soon. <clears throat> he is laying the foundation for, for the New Testament, the teachings of the words of Christ. Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of him of the Old Testament. We don't have time to talk about all those, but we'll summarize in Luke chapter 24 something that Jesus said on the walk to Emmaus. Remember the walk to Emmaus? Jesus has been, has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been raised again. <clears throat> he's been witnessed <clears throat> as a risen Savior by Mary and some of the women. And there's a couple of disciples that are downtrodden because they have witnessed all this and they were forlorn because they thought Jesus was the Messiah and now they've seen him crucified they've seen him die they've seen him buried they don't realize he's risen and they're walking to Emmaus and as they're walking along suddenly Jesus is walking with them and they don't recognize him and as he's talking to them he's asking them why they're sad and why all these things and suddenly he, he tells them this O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
Don't you recognize that all of these things were prophesied about the Christ? This, this was intended. This is, this is fulfillment, and it's not, we're not through. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus shows them, here were all these prophecies, and here's how they were all fulfilled in, in Christ. Jesus, all, he fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses to, by keeping it to perfection and then offering himself for the sins of all. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. <clears throat> so what happened concerning the law of Moses in the New Testament? What happened when Jesus died? Number one, the law and the prophets were fulfilled. <clears throat> As Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it, I came to fulfill it. And Jesus, in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrections, resurrection fulfilled the law of Moses. Number two, the law of Moses was taken away, being nailed to his cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say this, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he made alive together, quickened, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary took to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross that reference there about the handwriting of ordinances that were against us was a reference to the law of Moses and Jesus uh, the apostle Paul is saying when Jesus died on the cross that that law of Moses died there too it was nailed to the cross with him <clears throat> so the law of Moses was taken away those sins that which were rolled forward by the sacrifices of the law were finally forgiven. <clears throat> in the reading this morning, and thank you, thank you, Isaac, for the reading this morning, this is explained. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered into the most holy place once for all. <clears throat> Having obtained eternal redemption, he entered into the holy place. Jesus didn't go into that holy place in the temple. Later in this chapter, the, the the writer will tell us that Jesus went into the true holy place. He went into heaven before the Father with his own blood as the uh, one-time offering for all times for all people for sin. <clears throat> for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. That's a lot of words that we could spend a lot of time talking about, but I want to just highlight these verses, this part of the verses. But Christ, with his own blood, entered the most holy place, that being heaven once for all, and has obtained eternal redemption. <clears throat> for who? For this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant. You see that? There's a new covenant. There was an old covenant, now there's a new covenant. By means of death, for the redemptions of the transgressions under the first covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first covenant. All of those transgressions against the law of Moses. For the faithful under the law of Moses, whose sins have been rolled forward a year at a time, they are remitted. The price has been paid. No longer rolled forward a year at a time. Those sins have been forgiven. They have been made, atonement has been made for the sins of everyone who lived faithful to God 
before the cross. And that same atonement applies to everyone who lives afterwards. One time for all people, for all time, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ <clears throat> is offered. <clears throat> Those sins which were rolled forward by the sacrifices were finally forgiven. The covenant with physical Israel was made void by the death of Christ. The old, the old law was fulfilled. When Jesus died on the cross, it eliminated the need forever for that system of priests and sacrifices from that time forward. They, they were made obsolete. But something else happened too. Who was Jesus? Jesus is God. When Jesus died, being a party to that covenant, like if we have an agreement between me and you, and one of us dies, that agreement is finished. It is, it is voided. The old covenant with Israel was made void, fulfilled and made void by the death of Christ to make way for the New Testament. <clears throat> the New Testament, the final will and testament of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read also in there in Hebrews. For, when, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a, a force after men are dead. It has no power while the testator liveth. <clears throat> if you or I have a will, and we grant in our will certain things to certain people, while we live, we can do whatever we want to with those things. We can use them how, however we want. But once we die, <clears throat> and that will becomes in effect, it can't be changed. It is effective. That is the way it is effective from that point forward. It's not of effect before I die, but after I die, it does become of in effect. And it is carried out according to the terms of that will. And it is the same with Christ. That the old, when Jesus died, the Old Testament passed away. The New Testament, Jesus' final will and testament, came into being, came into effect. So if we look at a high level here, we see, and I know this is probably hard to read. It's hard for me to see that one back there. I apologize. But we have a comparison here of the Old Testament and the New Testament. On the left, we see the things of the Old Testament. On the right, we see the New Testament. Under the Old Testament, God's people were the Jews. Under the New Testament, God's people are Christians, those who have been redeemed in Jesus. The old, under the law of Moses, the people were governed by the law of Moses. We are governed by the law of Christ, that being the teachings of the New Testament. The will of Christ that is, that is revealed to us in the New Testament. That is what governs us today. <clears throat> the old law began with the giving of the law at Sinai, and it ended when Jesus died on the cross. The new law, the New Testament, began with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And our life in Christ will never end. There will come a time when Jesus will return and, and that, you know, now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The need for faith and hope is going to pass away, but love will endure forever because our life in Christ does not end. It is enduring forever. Under the old law, the sins were rolled forward a, a year at a time and there was no remission until Jesus died upon the cross. In the New Testament, the blood of Jesus Christ provides remission of sins, not only for those, but for us today. <clears throat> Under the old law, the way of salvation in Christ was hidden. It was veiled in the mysteries of the prophets. But now the plan of salvation has been given to us <clears throat> through the will of Jesus Christ, his final will and testament, as he communicated to the apostles with the giving of the Great Commission 
And as was carried out by them, as we see those things carried out in the book of Acts and illustrated through the epistles of the New Testament. The temple made with hands would be destroyed. It was made obsolete. In 70 AD, that temple was destroyed, never to be built again. But the true temple of God, the church, the kingdom of God was established, and we see its establishment in Acts, the second chapter. Okay, quick review. So a few weeks ago, Brother Ian talked about the Great Commission. I just want to, I want to review that real quick. This is the last will and testament of Jesus. It is just that Jesus has communicated. Jesus has died for our sins. He has made the way for eternal salvation for all people. And before he ascends back to heaven, he gives instructions to his apostles concerning how this gospel, how this good news will be spread, and what are the expectations of those who will receive it. If we look here in, in these verses, and again, we won't spend a lot of time, but in the Great Commission, which, which is, we've, we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in those verses, Jesus tells his apostles to stay at Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit, until you receive power from on high. We find that fulfillment. We find the fulfillment in Acts, the second chapter, where it says they were all in one place with one accord, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a rushing mighty wind filled the whole house in which they were sitting, and there were cloven tongues set upon each of them as fire. They received the Holy Spirit. The power Jesus had told them to wait for had arrived, and they began to speak the wonderful works of God by the Holy Spirit that directed them. Jesus said, You preach the gospel. He said, you go and you preach the gospel to every creature. What happened on Acts chapter 2? For the first time that gospel is preached. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is preached to those on Pentecost. Jesus said in Luke 24 that repentance and remission of sins were to be preached. What did Peter tell the people in Acts the second chapter? When they had heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repentance and remission of sins was to be preached. And that's what Peter was preaching them. Telling them that they had to repent. Repentance was required. And through the obedience of baptism, their sins would be forgiven. The remission of sins. Mark chapter 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe shall be damned. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter gives these instructions to the people, it says that those who gladly received his word were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. And there were added unto them, the disciples of Christ, some 3,000 souls that day. Jesus says, you teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Acts 2 says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So we see illustrated very plainly the instructions of Christ concerning the gospel and the salvation that it brought. And we see that carried out in the the Acts of the Apostles in Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment on the day of Pentecost. When we look at that pattern... The things that we do that are required of us to be saved, number one, that we believe the gospel. Number two, that we repent, that our belief in Christ moves us to turn away from sin and turn to God, that we confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we see these things illustrated through the book of Acts. Be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit for the remission of sins and finally live faithfully following the teachings of Christ in all of our life.
When we do those things according to the Bible, we can know that we have a right relationship with God. <clears throat> These are the instructions that were given by Christ and that were confirmed. And if we carefully and honestly study the New Testament, we see this doctrine taught throughout, throughout the book of Acts and throughout the epistles of the New Testament taught consistently. <sighs> so, Hebrews chapter 2 Verses 1 through 3 says this, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest, any, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by, confirmed to us by those who heard him? <clears throat> how Be careful. The writer is telling us, which I believe is Paul, <clears throat> he says, be careful. Give, give earnest heed to the things that we have been taught, lest you let them slip. And let me tell you something. Over the 2,000 years from then till now, <laughs> there's been a lot of slipping <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how we are to conduct ourselves in the, in the public assemblies of the church. And he's saying that things should be done orderly and in order. And he says, because God is not the, not the author of confusion. So that's the context in which this is written. But I believe this is also a principle of God, that God is not the author of confusion. And so when we look around the religious world today, we see there is a lot of confusion about Jesus and about salvation. <clears throat> There's, there are a lot of conflicting teachings. And, um, and so I don't want to talk. We don't have time to talk about a lot of that. But I'll, I want to just a high level. I want to look at a couple of things. And I like this illustration. I've seen Ian use this. <clears throat> to point out what the Bible says. And what doc many doctrines. How they differ from what. How they have drifted from what the Bible says to something different. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be, will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And that, to me, is very straightforward. I said, that's something we can count on. We can take to the bank, so to speak, that that is truth. That is word spoken by Jesus. <clears throat> Over time, this was changed in practice to say something different. <clears throat> so there, over a period of time, people began in their practice to say, he who is baptized and as later believes will be saved. And we say, wow, that's backwards. <laughs> how, do you, how do you go from A to B there? Well, throughout history, there have been a lot of things that have caused confusion. <clears throat> the scripture tells us, the God says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Ignorance of the scripture combined with superstition can create some very strange things in religious practices, in, in the practices of Christianity. <clears throat> over the, over a period, the period, hundred, a few hundred years from the time that Jesus died on the cross, from the time that the Great Commission was given, from the time that we read about that happened in the books of Acts, and the book of Acts and the epistles are written, over the f a few hundred years, peop some, some do different doctrines began to crop up. And one of those was the doctrine of total inherent depravity. <clears throat> and you may recognize that. So that indicates that when we are born, that 
or that doctrine says we are born, we are born into sin. We're basically condemned from the time we are born. <clears throat> we're born into sin and we're destined for hell. And so if you believe that, what do you want for your children? You want your children to be saved. You don't want your children to, to be condemned. And so people began to baptize infants because of that, because of this belief. Now, I believe the Bible, I don't believe that's at all what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible teaches the innocence of children until they reach an age of understanding to comprehend, number one, that they are sinners. Number two, the gospel of Jesus Christ and their responsibility toward it. <clears throat> but if you didn't believe that, if you believed your children were born into condemnation, then maybe you would want your children to be baptized when they were born. I mean, that, that's, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, that, if that's what you believe, <clears throat> you know, that combined with another, um, another false doctrine, and that was called baptismal regeneration. And what baptismal regeneration taught was that, there was, that, that baptism remitted sins whether you believed and repented or not. So barely, merely the act of baptism, whether you um, believed it or not, remitted your sins. And I'll give, I'll give you an example. There was a, there was a general who, who was, um, uh, he was, he was uh, later in, it was in later time, but he had an army and he wanted his army to all become Christians. And so he, he forced them all to be baptized in the river. So they didn't know why they were being baptized, probably most of them. But this belief was if you're baptized, regardless if you believe or not, that your sins are remitted. And so you combine these two. We think infants are born into sin. Number two, whether you believe it or not, baptism remits your sins. And suddenly, by the, five, by the fifth century, you see this practice, practice widely where people are baptized as infants. And later, when they're older, they have what they call confirmation. So they, they confirm, yes, I, I believe in Jesus Christ and I was baptized back then for the remission of sins. And so, but you see, you see the problem, you see the, the issue here is the difference between that and what, what the Bible teaches. And I want to point to, to Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. Romans chapter 6 and 17 says, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Okay, so what is that saying? What's he talking about? You've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. He's talking about what he talked about a few verses earlier, where he's talking about our baptism. And he's talking about that being a form of the gospel of Christ, the gospel being the death, the burial, and resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. And when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ's death. We're buried with him by baptism, baptism, and we're raised like he was raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. We have obeyed from the heart, from the heart, that form of doctrine that was delivered to us. And then notice the rest of the verse. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. When did we become free from sin? When we were baptized. Same thing that Peter taught on Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's taught consistently throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> so let me ask you this, and I think the answer is clear. <clears throat> Can an infant do that? And the answer is no. An infant cannot obey from the heart that form of doctrine. And so it, it violates the spirit of the Scripture. So... You say, 
Well, if you look around the world today, there is a big population of people who practice this. And you say, well, are you condemning those people? No, I'm not condemning those people. (laughs) It is not my place to condemn people. I'm simply simply pointing out the difference between what the Bible plainly teaches and what is practiced, widely practiced, many places in the world. Again, give them more earnest heed to the things that we have been taught, lest we let them slip. The warning is to all Christians of all time to be knowledgeable of what God's word is, and number two, to not stray from it. So another variation, also widely spread, he who believes and is saved and should be baptized, but doesn't have to be. (laughs) I mean, again, the, the difference between what Jesus said and what this said is very obvious. So where, and I don't have time to go into a lot of detail about where this doctrine began, but as best as I can tell, it began during the Reformation. And one of the big reasons for this was that first illustration that we looked at. <clears throat> the Reformation was a time when people having access to the Word of God began to look at the practices of the Roman church and see that many of them were in, in vast violation to the truth of the Scripture. And so they began to try to reform those things. If you look at how baptism was taught, was widely taught and practiced at that time, you would, have, you would say, and they said, that's not, we can't do that either. Rather than restoring the practice to the biblical examples and biblical instructions, they came to the conclusion, some of them, that it was not necessary. That salvation was by faith only and that baptism was not a part of it. Again, we don't have a lot of time to discuss and go into the details of that. In a few weeks, Mike McCorkle is going to be here. And if you're, I hope you're interested in this because he is going to talk to us over a period of, of studies what happened from the time that the, the gospel, the accounts in the New Testament were given up to the current time. And talk about the progression of different doctrines and what inspired them and how things, so how things were practiced. And so how we ended up where we are today with a wide variety of churches and teachings that are out there. But the point is this, again, if we look at this and we compare it to what Jesus said, we, we easily see the contrast. And if we go back and we look again at the, at the gospel, the great commission that was given by Jesus that was carried out by the apostles, we see that that does not correspond, as that does not coincide with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. When you talk to people who believe they practice this doctrine, a lot of times they'll say, well, but I was baptized. So if a person believes they're saved before they're baptized, and therefore they are baptized to be a part of a congregation or to illustrate outwardly what's already happened on the inside, as as many uh, people put it, does God accept this? Is that acceptable God? And my answer is, I don't know. I'm not God. (laughs) Um, But I can tell you this. Again, we go back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. This is what I would, this is where I would caution people. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered. you talking about baptism. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. So if I am baptized, and when I'm baptized, I believe that I'm already saved that what I'm doing at this point has no significance, but is merely an outward showing, does that satisfy 
what Paul says here, that you've obeyed from the heart. You know, you think about it, people place a lot of emphasis on what is in their heart, and that's important. What is in our heart is important, and that's what Paul is saying here. What is in your heart is important. What is in our heart is important when we sing. What is in, what is in our heart is important when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Part of what, what is in our heart is important when we pray. You see, that's all, all of those things are important, doing wholeheartedly whatever it is that we're doing in obedience and in service to God. That is important. <clears throat> I can't answer that question for, some, for, for anybody else. But just understand this. If I'm merely going through the motions, is that acceptable to God? Being then made free from sin. If I, if I, don't, if I think my sins are already forgiven, do I recognize that this is an appeal to God for a clear conscience to be forgiven? Anyway, I'm just making that point. And I'm making, again, I'm not judging people. I'm not condemning people. I'm just saying compare what, what the words of Jesus with the actual practice. Ian pointed this out a few weeks ago. What this practice is really saying is this. He who believes and is not baptized shall be saved. And again, you look at the comparison and that change in what Jesus has said. <clears throat> I think that's important for people to consider. <sighs> and people say, okay, but what about the thief on the cross? The thief wasn't baptized. Why should I have to be baptized? If the thief could be saved without baptism, why can't I be saved without baptism? And the question is, can we look to the example of the thief on the cross as an example of New Testament conversion? <clears throat> so think about that. The account of the thief on the cross we found in Luke, the 23rd chapter, beginning in verse 32, says there are, were also two other others, criminals led with him and put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. And Jesus said, not to the criminals, not concerning the criminals, but concerning those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, saying, mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If we look over in the book of Matthew, we see, we see a lot more narrative about this, that this was every group that was represented at the cross were doing the same thing. They were taunting Jesus. <clears throat> Isn't that human nature? <laughs> Hopefully it's not our nature to kick somebody when they're down, <clears throat> to, taunt, to taunt those who we consider, our, consider ourselves superior to or in some way superior to, to those Matthew 27 44 says that not only were all of the people surrounding the cross, and there were exceptions, obviously, because some of the disciples were there. Jesus' mother was there, and some of the other women were there. They weren't taunting Jesus, but the vast majority of other people were. And even those thieves on either side of him that were being crucified, it says that they also reviled him with the same thing. They were also reviling him. Both of them at first. Then one of the criminals, back to Luke chapter 23, who were hanged, blasph blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and, and us. What's he saying? Yeah, yeah, save yourself and save us too while you're at it. You know, he blasphemed. He taunted. Jesus never reviled. Jesus never answered back. 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? This one thief who has been taking part in the mob mentality for a while suddenly becomes reflective. And he recognizes the position that he's in. And he says to the other, Don't you realize you're being crucified too? Don't you have any fear of God? He's fixing to meet his maker. They are both fixing to meet their maker. And this one becomes reflective. And in his conscience, he realizes that he needs to fear God because he's fixing to be face to face. And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today will you be with me in paradise. So let's just summarize what I call the repentant thief. Number one, he was a Jew. You say, how do you know he was a Jew? Because Romans did not crucify their own citizens. And not only was he a Jew, he was a criminal. He was likely a career criminal because crucifixion was reserved for the vilest of criminals. He was likely a violent man to have ended up where he is. And as he's hanging there and he's reflecting and he's realizing this life is about to come to an end and he's about to meet his maker. (laughs) But what is ironic is his maker is hanging next to him. (laughs) The vilest of people. Crucifixion was reserved for them. What is Jesus doing there? Jesus was there for you. And Jesus was there for me. And Jesus was there for every person who has drawn a breath on this earth from the beginning of time till the end of time. That's what Jesus was doing there. He was dying for you and for me. And this criminal who realizes that he needs to fear God doesn't recognize him that he's hanging on the cross next to him. <clears throat> he acknowledges his own sin. Don't you? Re- he says, don't you realize we're here we deserve what we are getting. We've, we've earned this. The wages of sin is death. And he realizes who he is. He is a condemned man headed for hell. That's where he is. But he has also been observing Jesus. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know what this man's history was with Jesus. If he had ever seen Jesus before. But I say it's highly likely that he had heard things about Jesus because the, the, the fame of Jesus was everywhere. And so he probably had some idea about who Jesus was. But one thing that he certainly recognized as he's hanging there on the cross and recognizing that he deserves to be there is, he's, is that Jesus does not deserve to be there. And through what happens next, we see that he realizes several other things. Whether he had learned these through personal experience or if he had learned to others. Number one, he appeals to Jesus. He calls him Lord, which means ruler. He recognizes that there is somewhere beyond death that Jesus is going to rule a kingdom. Something his disciples in a lot of cases didn't recognize. By and large, they didn't realize. This man's suddenly faced with death is revealing some things about Jesus that a lot of other people didn't know. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
He recognizes Jesus is going to rule a kingdom and he wants to be a part of it. He's appealing to Jesus for forgiveness. And Jesus grants him forgiveness and mercy and says, Assuredly, I say to you, today will you be with me in paradise. Jesus was not only hanging on that cross for you and me and everybody else. He was hanging on the cross for those guys hanging next to him. He came to seek and save those that were lost. It is a powerful, this is a powerful story. It is a very powerful story about the need of mankind for salvation and what Jesus did for us upon the cross and the compassion and love of Jesus to save this man. So back to our question, what about the thief on the cross? Is the thief on the cross an example for us to be saved under the New Testament? So let's ask the questions. Number one, did Jesus forgive the thief before or after his death, burial, and resurrection? It was before. He was on the cross, but he had not died yet. Certainly not been buried and resurrected. It was on the Old Testament side of the cross. Number two, was it before or after Jesus gave the Great Commission? Well, obviously it was before, right? It was before Jesus gave. It was before Jesus had died, therefore solidifying the New Testament It is in effect after men are dead, right? It happened before. Whoops. Number three, was the thief on the cross an Old Testament Jew or a New Testament Christian? He was an Old Testament Jew. So the question is, can we look to the thief on the cross as an example of New Testament conversion? The answer is simply no. It's a powerful story. There are a lot of things we can glean from that, but that is not an example for how people are to be saved under the New Testament the final will and testament of Jesus Christ. I heard someone say one time, the only way that you can be saved like the thief on the cross is to be crucified with Christ. And on the surface, you say, well, that's kind of crazy. There's only two people in the history of the world that could say, I was crucified with Christ. But wait a minute, is that true? Galatians chapter 2 and 20, the apostle Paul wrote this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What did Paul say? He said, I have been crucified with Christ. When was Paul crucified with Christ? The same time that you and I were. Romans chapter 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, listen, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And verse 11 Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, in actuality, we are saved like the thief, aren't we? Because in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are crucified with him, buried and raised to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. 
I hope this lesson's been interesting to you. If you have questions you want to discuss about this, I'll be happy to take the time to do that. And I apologize, it's been a little lengthy, but I hope it's been, uh, this is certainly important to me, and I hope it's something that's important to you. Never knowing the minds of those present if you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would, this morning, confess your belief in him. Turn toward God that you would confess what you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be baptized into him. We invite you to come forward if we can assist you in any other way while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.